so lovely to be here. Thank you for welcoming me today. Can I tell you one more story about something God's been doing in our church, sort of hot off the press? Is that okay? Okay, so in July, we had, we've got an Uzbek, we're quite an international church, so we've got an Uzbek lady who got saved amongst us two years ago, and God's done remarkable things in her life. Anyway, uh, her aunt came to Istanbul, partly to visit relatives, but partly because she suffered from diabetes and had uh, sickness related to that. In particular, she had a real inability, she had lost a feeling in her feet, she had pain when she walked, real difficulty walking. In fact, it was so bad that when she arrived at Istanbul airport, she needed a wheelchair to get from Istanbul airport where the plane was to the exit of the terminal. Anyway, she wanted to come along to our church because she'd heard about Nergis talking about it and how God had worked in her life. So she came along at the beginning of July. I wasn't even there, actually, but she came along. She heard uh, the Sunday, and she wanted to be prayed for. So people gathered around her, uh, laid hands on her, and she said as she was being prayed for, she felt electricity, she felt heat coming upon her, and then she started walking, and then she started dancing, and she started feeling in her feet again. And actually... uh, things have returned to normal, completely. And uh, for the next week she was in Istanbul, she spent the whole time touring around Istanbul, exploring it, again, walking quite happily. She wanted to come to church the following week. I think she thought it was quite a good deal coming to church. And she said she came to church. Uh, that time she wanted to put her faith in Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Uh, so we were able to pray for her and see her come through to faith. And now she's returned to Uzbekistan. Uh, and obviously, in Uzbekistan, being a Christian can be quite hard work, but people keep going, what's happened to you? You came, went with a walking stick, and now you're happily walking. She goes, oh, Jesus healed me, uh, including saying to the doctors, and the doctors are amazed, and her family, on the one hand, really dislike it because they don't want her to be a Christian. On the other hand, they see this clear evidence of God at work, and it's sort of a bit undeniable, really. So anyway, there's another exciting story. Uh, I guess one of the things I love about living in the Middle East or living in Turkey, is the fact you get to see uh, lots of cultural expressions which are really very similar to the kind of culture the Bible was written in, because the Bible is a Middle Eastern book about a Middle Eastern person. And so sometimes you see things in a new way that I never saw when I was living in the UK. Uh, If you've got a Bible, can you please turn with me to Luke chapter 7? We'll be reading from verse 36. And we'll be looking at what it is to love Jesus in a costly way. While you're doing that, I just want to recommend two books to you. Uh, And the first one is a book called Global Humility, which is written by my friend Andy McCulloch. Fantastic book. And really it's about if you want to go overseas and serve God overseas, this is the kind of attitude with which we want to go and serve. And so it talks about going as a respect, uh, going in a way that's humble, going in a way where you respect the host country you're coming to because you're coming as a visitor. So you go as a student wanting to learn. You don't go having all the answers. You go there asking what are the questions people are asking. And then from that, you can bring the gospel message. So if you want to learn more about the kind of thing we're trying to do, Global Humility sums it up far better than I can do. And a second book I really want to recommend, which is a bit heavy at times, but it's a fantastic book, is a book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And basically it looks at various bits of uh, Jesus' teaching and Jesus' parables uh, and the birth story of Jesus, for example. And it's by a scholar who spent 40 years of his life working in the Middle East. Uh, And it's fascinating, some of the insights he draws out on the text of things I'd just never seen before. And actually, from this preach, quite a lot of the material, some of it when I was 
uh, comes from this book, and I was reading it and going, ah, oh, I get it for the first time. So I really recommend that book. It's fairly heavy going, and you'd want to use it kind of read a chapter, think about it, read a chapter the next week, say that kind of book rather than reading it all in one go, but I really recommend it. It's a brilliant book. Okay, so Luke chapter 7, verse 36 onwards. Let me just set up the context for this story. You see, in the previous part of Luke 7, the key questions are this. Who is Jesus and how do we respond to him? The Roman centurion comes to Jesus, a God-fearing Roman centurion, and he's full of faith. Jesus raises a widow's son. The people are amazed. John's disciples come to Jesus and say, are you really the one we're expecting who's the Messiah? Uh, And then Jesus says, the sick are being healed, the dead are being raised. Uh, Good news is being preached to the poor. And then... You've got the religious leaders who see Jesus healing someone on the, sun, on, on, on the Sabbath day. And because Jesus does this, they want to kill him. And they're stubborn. And what you find is you find there are two responses to Jesus. The people you'd expect to accept Jesus, the religious leaders, are the ones who reject him. And the people who are the unlikely people, the unexpected people, are the ones who are coming to him and finding grace and kindness and love and experiencing the wonder of what it is to be be known by him and to experience his mercy. And the kingdom of God is advancing. So really in this scene, the key question is, who is Jesus and how do we respond to him? And it's a classic Middle Eastern scene. It's a meal. If you want to know one thing about the Middle East, people love food. And they love taking time over food and enjoy spending time together. And there's two key players in the story. There's Simon, who's a Pharisee, someone who knows the law of God very well. And he's the one who invites Jesus to the meal. And then there's a woman. And the only thing we know about this woman is this. She's identified as a sinner. In other words, according to the culture at the time, she's someone who didn't live according to the law of God, was seen as dirty, unclean, rejected. So you've got these two key players in this story. So let's read from verse 36. It says this, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now, when we read that, I guess we think, interesting, interesting scenario, but actually this first sentence is crackling with tension. So Jesus is invited for a meal at one of the Pharisees' houses. Now, the fact that Jesus went to the Pharisees' house shows that he is honoring the Pharisee. You see, Jesus was recognized. Everyone knew him as a rabbi, stroke teacher, And in the Middle East, you're more honored hosting than being hosted. Therefore, Jesus is honoring them with his presence. Now, this reality that in the Middle East you're more honored hosting than being hosted makes sense of quite a few verses in the Bible. So if you look at Revelation 3, verse 20, or if you look at the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus, Jesus speaks to Zacchaeus in the tree and says, Come down, I'm coming to your house today for food. And we think, that's really presumptuous. How can you do that? But actually, 
Jesus is showing Zacchaeus honor by going to his house. Uh, again, Revelation 3.20, where it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and into him and eat with him and he with me. We sometimes read that as, oh yeah, let's open the heart up to Jesus. And that, but actually, what we're what saying is Jesus is standing there wanting to honor us with his presence. He's the one who's honoring us by standing at the door saying, I'm coming to you. I want to come into your heart. It's a profound thing. And this is still true in the Middle East today. So, for example, if I'm uh, in, my, in the church in Istanbul and I want to get to know people, uh, if I want to honor them, I say, oh, I'd like to come to your house, please. And I invite myself to their house. So it's an interesting thing. Now, so Jesus is hosting this Pharisee Simon by going to his house, by accepting his invitation. And then the host explicitly chooses to dishonor Jesus. You see, in UK protocol, when you go to someone's house in the UK, there's a protocol, isn't there? You go to someone's house for dinner, so uh, they take your coat, they say, hi, welcome. Uh, they bring you into the lounge. They say, oh, can I give you a drink? They turn off the television often. Uh, and then there's just general protocols of how we do uh, greeting people at meals to honor people when they come to our house. In the Middle Eastern culture, the same is true. Uh, you kiss people when you welcome them. Then after them, you would have given them olive oil and a bit of water to wash their hands and feet. Now, Jesus was the guest of honor. He was the teacher and therefore deserved special courtesies that, which should have been offered to him. But Jesus wasn't offered these. And let's be clear, the, the Pharisee, Simon the Pharisee here was deliberately snubbing Jesus by refusing to offer these normal protocols of how you greeted and honored people. It was a pointed insult. And everyone would have seen that. And then Jesus does this. He responds by reclining at the table. Now, just as sometimes in the UK, uh, the head of the house is the one who has a, uh, sits at the head of the table. Sometimes in traditional households, that can still happen nowadays. Actually, in Middle Eastern culture, the most honored, the most important person was a person who sat down first, and then everyone else would recline after him. So Jesus chooses to recline first by saying, actually, in essence, he's saying, I'm the eldest. I'm the most honored and the most important person in this place. So do you see this interplay going on? You've got Jesus honoring them with his presence, deliberately appointed snub, and then Jesus reclining at the table, saying, actually, well, I'm, I'm the guest of honor here. It's crackling tension. So kind of what's going to happen next uh, is really the question. Now, the sinful woman was already in the room. I guess the question is, how could she be there? Now, uh, Bible commentators say this, or people who uh, know about the, 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 uh, the Bible culture at the time. They say, actually, because Jesus was a Bible teacher and a rabbi, uh, and because he was a public figure, the door to this meal would have remained open so that people could come in and listen to what he was saying. So people from the village could have come round to listen to what Jesus was saying. Now, this woman was there at the beginning. We know that from verse 45, if you want to look at that. So she was in the room, but she was at the edge of the room. She was present, but she was uninvited. 
And she was no, she knew that she was known as a sinner. She knew that those who were the law keepers, the Pharisees in the room, thought of her as dirty and unclean. But she was there to see Jesus. And I think there's a strong case to suggest that this woman had already heard Jesus proclaiming the message of the kingdom of God uh, and grace towards those who were undeserving and was coming to express her thanks for the forgiveness she'd received. And I'll unpack that a bit later. The 11th century theologian writes this, uh, Ibn al-Tayyib. There is no doubt that the woman had previously heard the preaching of Christ and was deeply moved by it and believed and repented and was anticipating a chance to make visible her thanks to Christ and to confirm forgiveness for her sins and their salvation for herself. So this woman had come to honor Jesus and she had just seen Jesus be dishonored. She'd clearly come prepared to honor Jesus because she had this alabaster vase with her. She probably planned to anoint his hands and his head. She didn't have with her uh, a towel or the water to wash his feet. She assumed that would have been done by the host. But then the host had deliberately snubbed Jesus. So she sees Jesus being dishonored, the one who'd extended grace to her an outcast, and she chooses to reverse this dishonor. So it says about the fact she was crying. And the question is, why is she crying? Was she crying over her sin? In a sense, was she repenting, saying, oh God, I'm so sorry, I've realized I've messed up, and in tears because of that? Actually, from Jesus' response earlier, it seems like she'd already been forgiven. The church fathers, Origen and Ambrose, suggest the reason that she's crying is because of the dishonor Jesus received at the hand of Simon the Pharisee. I don't 100% know whether that's the case, but I think, there's a, I think there's a case for it. Now, because of, there's, I think there's a picture coming up next. Is it? Because of how people recline at the table, she couldn't get to Jesus' head, uh, to wash his head and his hands, or face and hands. There was no way to get to that because of how people lie. So instead, she decides to wash Jesus' feet. Therefore, despite knowing she's going to receive the derision of the guests, she washes his feet. But instead of a bowl of water, she washes his feet with her tears. She then does the unthinkable. She uncovers her hair and touches Jesus. And moreover, she then goes about drying Jesus' feet with her hair. Now, at that time, a woman was obliged to cover her hair in public life. In Jewish writings at the time, it was seen as justifiable for a man to divorce his wife if she was out in public with hair unbound. A woman's hair was seen as sexually provocative. In fact, this way of thinking is still current in some parts of the Middle East. A recent prime minister in Iran, uh, Rafsanjani, said this, on why they insist on women covering their hair. It is the obligation of the female to cover her head because woman's hair exudes vibrations that arouse, mislead and corrupt men. Uh, Now, I don't know whether we would buy into that, but certainly in the culture, you didn't let your hair down. It was seen as a dishonorable thing. 
Kenneth Bailey writes this in his book, and I think this is profound. In traditional, traditional Middle Eastern society, a bride on her wedding night lets down her hair and allows it to be seen by the husband for the first time. No one around the room could have missed the overtones of the woman's gesture. By unloosing her hair, she is making some form of an ultimate pledge of loyalty to Jesus. So it's not just the fact she was using her hair as a towel. It's the fact she was saying, actually, I belong to you. I'm expressing my love to you. You've been dishonored. I'm honoring you in what should, the host should have done. Uh, and I'm expressing my loyalty to you. And obviously it was makeshift and on the hoof. I don't think she'd premeditated it. But she chose to respond in that way. And then she used this very expensive perfume, potentially up to a year's worth of salary, to anoint Jesus' feet and she kisses them. It was an extravagant and a really costly expression of love. And it's interesting, we sang that song earlier, didn't we, about how his love is an extravagant. And it is. But then her response to his love was extravagant. Now the key question is this. How would Jesus, so you've got this tension in the room, how would Jesus respond to this woman who'd clearly crossed cultural boundaries and expressed such devotion? What would he do? Now we're told what the Pharisees would do and what they thought, if you turn to verse 39. Now when the Pharisees who'd invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus, answer, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Often in the Gospels, if you're reading the Gospels here now, what you notice is that Jesus often knew what people were thinking. Now, sometimes that was really supernatural. So, for example, the time he knew the woman at the well had five husbands and the one she was staying with at the moment wasn't her husband. That, I think that was supernatural. and God gave her him revelation so that then he could uh, start a conversation with her. But other times, I don't think it's that. Other times, I think it's the fact that Jesus was a student of the culture he was in. He'd spent 30 years before ministry to do the three years of ministry. He'd spent time knowing the culture, knowing the people, knowing the way they thought. And I just think he knew in this instance, actually, this is how the religious leaders will be thinking about this situation. And it's a provocation to us. We've got to be studies of our culture to know how our people think. In a sense, before you can answer people's questions, you've got to know what the questions are that they are asking. And we've got to know the culture to know how we can answer people's questions. So I think this is the instance of Jesus. Jesus knew what they would be saying. And he knows, the Pharisees are thinking, if you really are this prophet, if you are, really are this holy man, how can you be so near someone who's unclean, who's dirty? And what we see again and again in the gospel is Jesus comes to those who are unclean and dirty, and he makes them clean. He doesn't get dirty, rather he makes people clean. So Jesus responds. And he responds with a parable. Jesus loves to respond to parables because they change people's worldviews. And he says this, verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, from whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Now in this story, there are no names 
There are just two people, one with a big debt, one with a small. But it's clear who Jesus is referring to. Both, and this is a key thing, both have a debt that they cannot pay. Admittedly, some people have lived more righteously and lived better than other people, but everyone's got a debt, and that debt cannot be paid. And the only solution for the debt is for it to be cancelled. And the only... And the one who knows that they have a big debt that's been cancelled is the one who loves much. And then, I love this in the story. This story is just so much about dishonour, honour, removal of shame. So then Jesus continues and defends the honour of the woman. She's defended his honour. Now Jesus goes and defends her honour. And it's at a personal cost for him, as you'll see. I wonder whether you've ever been to a meal at someone's house and at the end of the meal, you've critiqued the host. So you've said, oh, thank you so much for having me for a meal. To be honest, the welcome could have been a bit better. You're a bit shoddy. You could have taken my coat a bit quicker. Uh, The starters were a bit tepid. And I think you could have been better at making everyone talk a bit better together. You were a bit slow at kind of being the excellent host. I imagine you probably haven't done that. But Jesus pretty much does that in this story. Let's see what he says. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Why? She had known forgiveness and acceptance, and from that she loved much. That's why she responded the way she did. Her honouring of Jesus at the cost of being scorned by everyone else in the room was a response of that forgiveness. And that's the wonder of the gospel. It doesn't say, uh, the, the wonder of the message of Christianity is this. It doesn't say, live a radical way and then you can find forgiveness. It says, actually, you receive love, you receive mercy, you receive the kindness of God. It changes you from the inside out and therefore you live in a radical, uh, sacrificial, loving way. It's always Jesus who's the one who initiates and we follow. You see, it was her forgiveness that was the cause of her extravagant love. And Jesus is making the point that Simon omitted to honour him because he had not known that heart-changing forgiveness. Indeed, this forgiveness was available to him. The parable Jesus taught showed that the money lender, who's God, cancelled the debts of the greater and the lesser debtor. Yet from Simon's response to Jesus, it seems like he'd not responded to this debt cancellation. And that which changes everything. When we know our debt's been forgiven, when we know our sin's been wiped away, our shame's been lifted, that's a game changer. He did not know the thankfulness and joy that came from his debt being cancelled. The woman, in contrast, expressed extravagant love, extravagant honouring of Jesus. She knew she owed her honour and forgiveness to Jesus. 
It's actually Simon was in the same place as the woman. He had a debt to pay. He had not lived perfectly. Yes, he'd cried carefully to follow Jesus' laws, but he'd still uh, not lived up to the mark, if you like. But he didn't realize that his, either he didn't realize he needed a debt forgiven or else he hadn't experienced the debt being forgiven and didn't know the delight of that and the celebration of that and the desire then to honor Jesus. I suppose the question for us in this story as we read it is who do we most identify with? The woman? Or do we identify with Simon? Do we know that we've been living a life that's been way off God's standards? Or do we sometimes think, actually, no, I've lived pretty well. I've actually, God should be proud of me and God should accept me. Because the reality is both of them had a debt and both needed to respond. And actually, whether or not uh, you identify more as someone who's come from a religious background, who's tried carefully to follow all of God's laws, or whether you come from a background where you kind of completely rejected everything the Bible said and lived wildly, actually, the issue is before God, there's an offer of forgiveness, there's a, gift, there's a debt cancelling God, and both of you have a debt. Even those who've lived, re- lived their best still have fallen short of God's standards, but he comes and wants to forgive. And it's a case of coming to him as we are. It's a case of accepting that forgiveness and coming to follow him. It's that knowing forgiveness. It's that knowing that God's loved us and God's removed our shame. God's removed our guilt that changes everything. It changed it for that woman and it changes it for us. And then I love it. I love it how the, it, it, I think I love it how then Jesus turns to this woman and says, "Your sins are forgiven." Again, publicly honouring him, her in the cra- in in this crowded room. Everyone thinks you're too dirty, and he says, "Actually, no, you've been forgiven." And I imagine very few people would have spoken such tender words to her in her life. But that's what God's grace does, and that's what the message of the gospel is: is God speaks tenderly to people. Uh, who are receptive and says, your sins are forgiven. And what's so startling about that is at that time, in that culture at the time, rabbis weren't even meant to be speaking to women in public. In fact, often husbands didn't particularly speak to women, their wives, in in a public setting. So Jesus crosses a cultural boundary to honor this woman, to express the fact she has been forgiven which it seems like she already knew she'd been forgiven because that's why she was extravagantly loving. So this woman showed extravagant love and really the love she showed is an echo of the extravagant love that Jesus first of all showed for her. And we're kind of coming into land now but, and drawing to an end. But let me just read from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 9. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. See, Jesus knew honor. Yet the one who was fully God became a human being. The Bible says the one who spoke the universe into being. Uh, and sustained the universe. He was born as a baby. He humbled himself. He knew what it was uh, 
to be shamed, to be dishonored. Ultimately, he knew what it was to live as a servant, to die on a cross. So he uh, experienced the ultimate shame, if you like, the ultimate dishonoring by being uh, numbered amongst criminals and those who were seen as people who deserved death for how they'd lived. And he was dishonored in such a way so that we could be honored. So that he, he knew shame so that our shame could be removed. I heard this a while ago. It said this. It said, uh, guilt is knowing you've done wrong. Shame is feeling you are wrong. Uh, and the gospel deals with our guilt. It takes away our sin. But actually it deals with our shame. It lifts us and honors us uh, and raises us up. And Jesus, when he died on the cross, died on the cross so that people like us could know what it is to be restored, to know forgiveness, no shame removed, and go, no grace. It says this in Mark chapter 10. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Or John 10. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And so Jesus experienced dishonor and shame and ultimately death so that we would know honor from God and be lifted up. But then the wonder of it is, you see this almost U-shape, uh, that then after that, Jesus was greatly honored and now he sits at the place of glory and he rose from the dead and he conquered death and he's exalted. So the question is, how do we... So Jesus, in a sense, modeled this being willing to be dishonored, but then he was glorified so that we would know honor. So the question is, how do we respond? How do we respond to this offer of forgiveness? If we've been forgiven much, Jesus says we love much. And Jesus consistently said this to his disciples, follow me. It's quite simple, really, follow me. So calling Matthew, Peter, Andrew and John, James and John, he said, follow me. And they left everything and followed him. He unpacked that a bit more. Uh, in, I think it's Luke, eight, Luke, nine, Luke 9. And calling the crowd with him, with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. You see, like the woman anointing Jesus with expensive perf perfume, choosing to know dishonor for his sake, let's love Jesus. Let's follow him. Our response to the extravagant love we've received is to follow him and to serve him and to extravagantly love him and love the people in Seaford and love the people who are, uh, are in our lives. We love much because we've been loved. And the call is, in how do we respond to that love? We follow him. Actually, God's placed you guys in Seaford. He's placed you in Seaford to reflect that love and that mercy and the kindness of God and to show that to others. And to honor those who are downtrodden. And to show mercy to those who often don't hear uh, words of mercy. And to show acceptance to those who feel like no one would accept them. That's the wonder of the gospel. That's what Jesus did to this woman. That's what Jesus is wanting to do through you and through the church here, and through all of us, whether it's in Istanbul, whether it's in Seaford. Actually, we can express a love because we've been loved much.
Let me stop there. Uh, what would be great would be respond, wouldn't it, to the extravagant love that God showed to us that he, when he came. So let's respond with love. But I also think there's two things I think God would maybe want to do today. One would be, or three things. One would be some of you maybe have just forgotten what it means to have been forgiven much and just almost lo- lost the, the wonder of what it means to have been saved and the fact that God's removed your sin. And God just wants to remind you again Actually, I've, done, I've taken away all your sin. I've removed it all. And for you to almost be filled once again with this wonder that prompts you to love more. I think that's one thing God may want to do. I think secondly, for some of you, there may be the fact that God, God just wants to speak over to you. Like this woman, your sin's forgiven. And just that sense that God would want to come and remind you actually you've been forgiven. He would want to remove from some of you who are living in shame, the shame that sometimes you're living in that God would want to lift up just like he did with that woman. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for your extravagant love. We want to thank you that you were willing to be dishonored. You were willing to be shamed. You were willing to be despised so that we could be honored and lifted up. Thank you, God, for the wonder of the gospel message which says we can know forgiveness. We can know shame removed. And God, we want to revel in the wonder of what you've done. Lord, we thank you that you loved us first. Thank you that you were the one uh, who sought us out, who left the 99 to find the one who was lost. Thank you that you're the one who lifts up. Thank you, God, it always starts with you. You're the initiator of grace and mercy and kindness. And God, we want to respond to that. God, we say, would you help us love much? Because we know profoundly that we've been forgiven much and we've been loved much by you thank you that we've been we're known by the king of kings and the lord of lords amen